It's true there's no great gulf between that sort of Beatles song and George Formby's own. Says the old maid every evening as beneath her bed she peers Once more damned unlucky after five and twenty years I think growing up, you know, all them songs were always in the back of my life. Like, for instance, I'm just seeing a lot of the old movies again and um, having a lot of deja vu going on in my brain over certain songs because remember me either being played in the background or my mother singing them you know when I was maybe three or four like being a terrible hell of a long time gone a lot of songs which weren't you know on the favorites like everybody knows Liam the Lamppost and Mr. Wu but um, it's a lot of other songs in there that uh, I'm getting to learn now that I realized I'd heard when I was a kid. And then I always wrote songs with those kind of chords anyway. And the Beatles songs were a lot like that, just made into the 60s. when they was fab. I'm Ed Chin. Lonnie Pena was scheduled to be with us, and he would have been with us, but he got himself a paying gig with his band, The Man Cave Band. You can look him up on themancaveband.com and on SoundCloud, where they have a nifty version of I Saw Her Standing There. So, we're taking this opportunity to bring in a special guest, someone we've been trying to have with us for a while, Martin Quibell, or is it Quibell? Uh, pronounce it Quibell, but any variations okay. All right, we'll take note of that. Now, you first came to our attention as a fan of the podcast, putting up on social media each time you listen to one of our episodes, either old or new. Now, where exactly in England are you located? Uh, near Nottingham. So, since we're going transatlantic, we decided to go with a topic that we as Americans don't quite understand. We know British Music Hall was a big part of the lives of the Beatles, but what exactly was it, and how does it relate to things like pantomime and then later George Formby? 
I think that uh, a lot of British people were, or musicians in the 50s and 60s, were influenced by that sort of musical style and also the theatricality that's in, innately British. It could be seen as almost a camp style. So tell us about some of the connections you see between this style and the music of the Beatles. Certainly, we start with, as mentioned in the clip at the top of the show, when I'm 64. Definitely. I was thinking, actually, that that's probably the first example that's obvious in the Beatles' catalogue of released material that shows that influence in Paul's writing. When I get older, losing my hair, many years from now, will you still be sending me Valentine? Birthday greetings, bottle of wine. Till quarter three, would you lock the door? Will you still need me? Will you still need me? When I'm 64, all together. When I'm 64, more time. When I'm 64. <laughs> I think it was obvious from the beginning that the Beatles were influenced by this style of music. One example of it would be possibly the inclusion of Till There Was You on with the Beatles using a show tune. The next song we'd like to sing now is one which is a bit slower. This is from the show The Music Man, and it's also been recorded by our favourite American group, Sophie Tucker. Interesting. And Paul was also a big fan of Somewhere Over the Rainbow in the early Cavern days. But what about other original material? Perhaps your mother should know. Your mother should know. That was quite interesting. I quite enjoyed that. A lot of what happened with the Beatles was based on our memories. So songs like Penny Lane was uh, a real place uh, in Liverpool, which held fond memories for us. And Your Mother Should Know, which appears in Magical Mystery Tour, is a sort of almost like a music hall song, which is in the style that our parents would grow up to and we would hear as young kids and that we'd broken away from as we went into rock and roll. I think towards the end of the film we wanted something bigger, a bit of a production number. Well that would certainly help explain the big Busby Berkeley style dance number at the end of Magical Mystery Tour. So we got into our white tuxedos. That, that's true, yep. And then uh, of course after that you've got Honey Pie on, uh, on the White Album which is very show tuney. Honey pie, you are making me crazy. I'm in love, but I'm lazy. So won't you please come home? Oh, honey pie, you are making 
instances of where this sort of music hall field is prominent. You know, Obladi Oblada could be seen as a sing-along along those lines where back in the day you'd have somebody on the stage probably in period costume, and they'd be singing. Because we used to have a television series in England called The Good Old Days, where basically people who were around, it's a 1970s series from when I was a child, and you'd have uh, actors from now dressed up in old costumes and they'd be almost reenacting that sort of period. They used to do sing-alongs like Obladi Obladar all together now. The intent was to get the people to sing along to them, so perhaps they are influenced by that sort of background. Interesting. I can't really think of any analogous American program of that sort. I mean, I was thinking the same about Maxwell's Silver Hammer as well. Joan was quizzical, stood apart of physical science in the hall. Late nights all alone with a test tube. that's very disliked by a lot of people I think possibly Paul's original intent was to try and get that sort of feel to it 
him trying to get that humour as well. But unfortunately, to a lot of people, it missed the mark to an extreme measure. Maxwell Silverhammer was one of two tracks, the other being Obla D, Obla Da, that John and George and Ringo really didn't enjoy recording very much. Uh, and in fact, in 2008, Ringo told Rolling Stone that Maxwell Silverhammer was the worst session, the worst track we ever had to record. It went on for weeks. <laughs> and I thought it was mad. Paul said they got annoyed because it took three days to record Big Deal. Uh, but George said in 1977, sometimes Paul would make us do these really fruity songs. That's my George Harrison. <laughs> I mean, my God, Maxwell Silverhammer was so fruity. Uh, we did a good job on it, uh, but when Paul gets an idea or an arrangement in his head, dot, dot, dot. And John, in an interview to promote this album, called Maxwell Silverhammer a typical McCartney sing-along, or whatever you call them, he did quite a lot of work on it. I was ill after the accident when they first did that, and I believe that he really ground George and Ringo into the ground. And that is to promote the album. John always spoke his mind. So um, Maxwell Silverhammer was, had that kind of reputation within the band. It was an interesting song anyway. It's quite a jolly little pop song, and yet it's got three murders in it. That's quite unusual. And Paul would return to that sort of songwriting several times during his solo career. Absolutely. You've got probably, you gave me the answer from Venus and Mars, even English Tea on Chaos and Creation in the Backyard. Really? I've always thought of English Tea as Paul writing a Beatles parody, almost like a When They Was Fab, but very much with tongue in cheek, you know, sort of trying to outruddle Neil Ennis. Yeah. Would you care to sit with me for a cup of English tea? Would you care to sit with me for a cup of English tea? Very twee, very me, any sun. didn't Paul mention once that he, he could see Noel Coward singing that song? That's true. I'd forgotten about that interview. You know, that brings to mind another song, Suicide. Yeah, I'd not thought about that. No. Y you can understand why Frank Sinatra would laugh at the song now. Now, much of our discussion thus far has centered on Paul McCartney, and he is certainly the Beatle most obviously associated with this kind of music, but there's no doubt that George Harrison and John Lennon were both big fans of British Music Hall and later forms such as George Formby. Indeed, Lewison tells us that All the Harrisons loved the records they bought in Liverpool shops by George Formby, the toothy North of England banjolele-plucking star of music hall and film comedies. These were real English songs of rhythm and source, and George was hooked. John Lennon also loved Formby and saw him on stage at Liverpool Empire in the 1948-49 pantomime season. An annual trip to the Empire Panto was one of the two big treats he was allowed each year by Mimi and George. Now George, in later years, 
frequently detailed his love for Formby. Non-British people will recognize him as the figure who shows up at the very end of the Free as a Bird video. But George Formby and his family actually played a much larger role in the history of American cinema. George Formby Sr., born in 1875, was an actual Victorian music hall performer, and Charlie Chaplin was to meet him and to base in part the dress and cane twirling of his little tramp on a character from Formby. Okay, I didn't know that there was an influence there between the two of them, but that's very interesting. Formby Sr. would pass away in 1921, and his son would take over the mantle as stage performer. As he moved from stage to records and film, his act would start to differ from that of his father. Music and performance would take a larger role, and he would become associated with the wooden or Hawaiian ukulele, and later on the banjo lele. Yes, indeed, which is the instrument that is more commonly known as, uh, well, visually playing. It is not a huge stretch to say that Formby's films and stage shows were indirectly responsible for the union of Julia Stanley and Alf Lennon. Okay. I say this because the early relationship between the two was based on Julia's job as an usherette in the cinema and live theater shows. Formby and his films would have served as a main attraction for the young lovers. Okay. Oh, yes, and this is what you were saying to me uh, before recording, where that's how they both met each other. Exactly. Now, my hypothesis is that part of the reason why Julia picked up the banjo and the ukulele was because of Formby. Julia would then go on to teach John his first chords on the guitar. As the story goes, in the early days, he left the sixth string hanging loose and played it like a banjo. That's how John learned learned the guitar, is moving those chords that he learned on the banjo to what, to what he played on the guitar. Exactly. And that lasted until Paul said to him, No, John, you've got to learn some real chords. Now, George Harrison also tells stories of Formby from his youth, and later he would become a very big fan. Yeah, most definitely. I'm wondering if because of uh, George's larger family, if they perhaps did sing-alongs together as a family group, perhaps, which might have influenced George as well. An interesting idea, but you don't really hear all that much about the Harrisons performing at family gatherings. Ringo and Paul, however, have frequently talked about their regular gatherings, the sing-alongs, and the party pieces, which then helped launch them into their musical careers. Most definitely, I mean, especially with Paul's father. Ringo frequently tells the story of performing Nobody's Child and making his mother cry. You know, the same song that the Wilburys would later cover. Yes, definitely, which is probably from George's own inspiration and love of that sort of music as well. Paul tells the stories of the annual McCartney parties, the same ones where Uncle Albert would get up on the table and start reading the Bible. Now, in the early days, he was apparently the kid who went around serving the drinks. Later on, he would sit at the piano next to Jim Mack while they played all the old tunes. Tin can music, as Paul likes to call it. He played um, 
from another era, songs from another era. One of my favourites he played was a song called Lullaby of the Leaves. He used to play um, things by Paul Whiteman and his orchestra. He played uh, Chicago, Chicago, so I loved all those songs and I loved hearing him. Jim would eventually develop arthritis and the task of playing the piano would fall to Paul. Now, of course, we live in a much different era these days, but still, you hear of such gatherings in England and throughout Europe much more frequently than you do in the United States. Do you have any personal stories from your childhood? Yeah, I, I remember my own uh, family. We used to get together for for Christmas, for instance, at my grandma's, where the entire family, cousins, uncles, aunts, would all get together. We'd have a big, enormous table set up outside, and uh, everybody would be there eating, drinking, and uh, my granddad used to play a harmonica and a bit of piano. So he used to do a few tunes, and uh, people, and you, you could hear the adults singing along, and sometimes the, the, the kids would sing along as well. So well, definitely, yes, I remember times like that. Now, those McCartney family gatherings lead us back to pantomime. Paul's cousin, Bette Robbins, ran a pub in 1960, and that pub is where John and Paul were to perform as the Nurk Twins. Now, as I understand it, some of the contemporary Robins are also in show business. Paul's got a few or a couple of people that I know of that are in show business. His uh, his cousin Kate Robbins, she is a singer and uh, voiceover artist and she does comedy as well. She's sung backing vocals for Paul before on some of his albums. Uh, she's one of the backing singers on Good Times Coming and Only Love Remains on the Press to Play album. brother Ted is a an actor and an entertainer and he does pantomime every year. So tell us a little bit about pantomime. It's something that I understand conceptually and the Beatles named their 1966 Christmas record pantomime everywhere it's Christmas and we mentioned John going to the pantomime as a child but it's not something that we really have or understand in the States. Pantomime I think is a tradition where you will have a story and it's it's a difficult thing to explain you have jokes and humor and a lot of it is it's, it's intended for family but you will find that occasionally you'll have jokes there that are intended for adults but the more insinuating as opposed to direct which i think shows itself in a lot of the beatles songs where you'll find john does that a lot where he will purposely have little jokes to himself, where he puts them into songs, but you won't notice them so much as in an obvious way. As a child, you'll just sort—it's sort of like whatever. But as an adult, 
you'll, you'll see these things and it'll make you smile and, and laugh. Not a Lennon song, but maybe Four of Fish and Finger Pie from Penny Lane? Yes, I think so, yeah. As a good example of that sort of humour, you could probably look at the what we call the carry-on films of the uh, British cinema. The carry-on series never actually made it here, although I do know that Norman Rossington, Norm from Hard Day's Night, appeared in two or three films from the series. So, okay, you talk about insinuation and what Monty Python describes as nudge-nudge, wink-wink, without being explicit. That also sounds like the George Formby films to me. When I'd visit my grandma and granddad, they would have those sort of films on in the background, the George Formby films. So, yeah, they were they were much in the same way where they were meant for family, but like you said, there were the there was the insinuating humour that would pass over a uh, youngster, but the adults would would cotton on to it, so to speak. That reminds me of Eddie Murphy and Shrek, you know, a family film where you have donkey making all sorts of vaguely outrageous comments absolutely or what would be more obvious uh, or a more direct thing for the americans to to see would be sort of like the monty pythons perhaps because they they have that sort of humor in their sketches occasionally as well i mean you've you've got the cross dressing there from the uh, from the musical period well, they did do that entire episode about pantomime horses. It's kind of funny, you know. I guess they're trying to parody the parody. That, that, that's, that's a funny way of looking at it, but yes, definitely. So that tells us a little bit more about pantomime. Your theory is that grounding in panto reflected itself in the Beatles and their humor. I think so. I think... Um... You can see that from, uh, there's a famous story, isn't there, where when they went for the audition with uh, at Abbey Road with George Martin, where Harrison said to him, I don't like your tie. There's that sort of bit of humour, or, or in uh, Is a Hard Day's Night, where they say, oh, he's very clean. And it's just that sort of humour that that harkens back to the, uh, the musical humour. Now, that's really interesting. All the times I've seen it, I've never considered... Uh, Wilfred Bramble in the role of Paul's grandfather as being a Formby-esque character, but you know, I guess he certainly is in that tradition. Yeah, well, everything influences everything else, doesn't it? I mean, you look at things now, and they must be influenced from something in the past, but there's not an obvious sign there. That brings up kind of an interesting point. You know, the Beatles in there did have an appreciation for the theatrical which then, in turn, presents yet another reason why Brian was the perfect manager for the group. You look at the Beatles' Christmas show of 1963, and then another Beatles' Christmas show of 1964, that's really nothing but an extension of the music hall tradition. Definitely, yeah. You can see it in in that. Although, George Harrison is quoted as saying, We didn't like doing pantomime, so we did our own show, more or less like a pop show, but we kept appearing every few minutes dressed up, just for a laugh. Um, oh, I remember clips from it. Unfortunately, there isn't that much existing anymore, either audio or video. Perhaps you're thinking of the very similar Around the Beatles special. I am thinking of the Around the Beatles show where they're all dressed up and they were, they were actually doing a pantomime, weren't they? 
Yes, they do a very panto-like skit where John and Paul play the lovers Pyramus and Thisbe from A Midsummer Night's Dream. That's it, yeah. However, they did more or less do a full-on pantomime in each of their Christmas shows. There are photos which have been republished many times from the 1963 show where John is playing the villainous Sir John Jasper, George the heroine, and Paul as fearless Paul the signalman. Poor Ringo, all he got to do was run around the stage and sprinkle snow on everybody. Unfortunately, this was from an era before everybody had a camera and an audio recorder in their pocket. So that's all we've got. That quote from George about not really wanting to do pantomime is interesting and kind of extends into his solo career as well. We've already mentioned his love of George Formby and his willingness to go up on stage and play a Mountie with his Monty Python friends, but he never really would come anywhere near the pantomime form. No, but I think there are times where... In his solo career, he's hearkened towards that. I think that's why he always goes around with a ukulele, apparently. I don't know if that's so much panto, but yes, Georgia was well known for carrying around ukuleles. No matter where he showed up, he would hand one out, telling all of his friends, you don't have a ukulele? You need one. Here. Yes, I've heard that before. It's, it's a fun story where we see the interview with, the, with Tom Petty where he where he says that he just opened up his boot and handed him a ukulele out of his uh, out of the boot of his car. One, a two, a one, two, three. He showed up one day and he came in with two ukuleles and he gave me one. He goes, God, we'll, we'll play this thing. It's great, you know, let's jam, you know. And I said, I have no idea how to play a ukulele. Ah, it's no, no problem, I'll show you, you know. So we spent the rest of the day playing ukuleles, and I mean, I mean, playing ukuleles, strolling around the yard playing ukulele. My wrist hurt the next day, but he taught me how to play it, you know, and uh, a lot of the chord formations. And when he was going, I walked out to the car, and he, he said, "Well, wait, I want to, I want to leave some ukuleles here." And he'd already given me one, you know. I said, well, I've got it. No, we, we may need more. <laughs> and he opened his trunk, and he, he had a lot of ukuleles in the trunk. And I think he left four at my house. And he said, well, you, ne you know, you never know when we might need them, because everybody doesn't carry one around. I want to cross you up my list. But when you come knocking at my door Fate seems to give my heart a twist And I come running back for more George Harrison loved the instrument so much that he eventually became a member of the George Formby Fan Club. Okay, so I don't know how many of you know, but George Harrison was a really good ukulele player. Let's hear it for Georgie! Yeah, he was a really good player. In fact, uh, he loved this guy, a British star, an old black and white uh, screen star in England called George Formby. Yeah! Yeah! <laughs> Super George! Um, and George loved him so much. I mean, he could do all that stuff, but he could play it all. Oh, 
just to illustrate the point, you know. Anyway, we could do it all. He was in the George Formby fan club. We used to go up to Blackpool and win 40 of them. Apparently, one of the ways it was possible to get a sight of George Harrison during the last decade of his life was to show up at the George Formby fan club meetings, particularly the larger ones. So while we're on the subject, you had mentioned that you had some skills on the ukulele. Why don't you demonstrate a little something for us? I haven't actually practiced something. I wish I had, no. <laughs> well, certainly most of us are familiar with Paul McCartney's ukulele rendition of something. Do you have your own version of that? I do think that George's love of music hall, and George Formby in particular, I think it's shown through the arrangement and the performance that he does on the song The Devil in the Deep Blue Sea on Brainwashed. think wow that's great as far as george and uh, that song on brainwashed back when the album was released danny harrison did a lot of press and one of the things he made sure to say frequently was that he chose that song even though the source was a jules holland television special particularly because he wanted a ukulele centric tune the, the reason why i suggested that that's got a I know that the history of the song isn't from the musical tradition, but the arrangement, it's just the, um, to me, it just sounds like it's got that sort of feel to it that he's giving to it. See, to me, that's got a, that feel to it. One thing I get from your playing, which I'd never actually noticed before, you can actually hear how John Lennon came to his very distinctive strumming style on the guitar. Yes, which would be, uh, would fall back to him learning on banjo and ukulele back when he was younger, and he's probably got that, that rhythm from that background, maybe. Okay, well, this has been great. Really interesting. Thanks for joining us. Do you have any last thoughts on the Beatles and Music Hall? I think the understanding we've given listeners here as to the form will make them appreciate the Beatles' early appearances on British television much more. You know, the Morecambe and Wise... And Mike and Bernie Winters skits. Absolutely. All right. Great. Thank you, Martin. Lonnie and I will be back with a new show next week. Subscribe to When They Was Fab on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, or wherever finer podcasts are found. Please join our Facebook group, and we could be reached at When They Was Fab and on Gmail. The opening theme 
was written, produced, and recorded by Jay Young Kim, Beaster Famine Studios, San Francisco, California. sweeping the nation, and that's all there is to it. These don't all get stuck in your head, I mean, some of these... Oh, God, since I just went and had a crash course in George Formby, and uh, I haven't slept for months, you know, just having dreams about Ludwig banjos and these songs going around my head. Is there and Jimmy one? now, he's over there, you uh, see. Yeah, I'll have those dreams too. The best thing about it for me is that it's just funny music. It's very light-hearted, and it's hard to play a ukulele banjo without smiling. You know, it tends to lighten your life up a bit. And it can be a solitary vice or a great group. How I see it, I mean, this is one extreme, the Formby Society, where everybody's thrashing away. I mean, that is good fun. That assembly marked the 30th anniversary of Formby's death, and now George Harrison himself is gone. The last I saw of him was when he and his son Danny joined a chorus of 38 ukulele banjos on a Formby-inspired rendition of Anchors Away. Well, there hasn't been a Bob Dylan version of a Formby song so far, but the Beatles had one last say with their mid-90s release, Free as a Bird.
It's been done. 